Hi, and welcome to the Making Our Way podcast. This week, our guest is Matt from Slab City Flies, and he teaches us all about trout fishing. Then the gang gets together and tells a few fish tales of our own. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, good to see you this week. Hey, Yo. hey. Dean, what you been up to? Yeah, man, got myself out here, and I think I had almost every machine running at some point. Uh, did a stamp in the Glowforge, did a brand in the Fiber Laser, printed out some stuff on the 3D printers. So, uh, you know, just had a lot of going on. And it was so nice because you could turn those machines on and then I could go and like clean up my mess from the previous woodworking projects. Yeah, I saw you had tons of stuff going. I know Texas during when it gets a little chilly, they say, hey, don't use all the electricity. I'm like, right. well, it's and not I, because it's cold. It's because Dean's using it all right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you say that in uh, the days that I run the lathe and the dust collector, I see my utility bills go up because I'll usually run something on the CNC first to do kind of like the bulk work. So like I make those ashtrays, I'm boring out the center hole on the CNC and then I move it over onto the lathe to do some detail work. And I'm running the dust collector and the lathe and the CNC and definitely see a spike in the power usage on those days. I bet. But um, I, I've been enjoying this, making the ashtrays. I think it might be something I, I do like a limited run of like 10 of and put them for sale. But I, I kind of was just doing the same design and then Marvin sent us pictures of his ashtray today, and it made me realize just how boring mine were. So <laughs> I think I need to go back to the the drawing board on a few more things. The last one I made had some cracks down the bottom. It's kind of disheartening because I sanded it over a thousand grit. It was just, it's really good looking. It's this um, real deep yellow kind of color, and it's the biggest one I had made yet. So I was really excited about it. When I pulled it out the mineral oil and I saw those splits, I was upset. What mm. what kind of wood was that one? Uh, acacia. So, you know, that mm. cheap stuff that Target makes everything out of. Huh. But I thought I bought an acacia blank. I thought it was going to be white or brown, depending if it was heartwood or not. But it's it's yellow. Like, I yeah, mean, it, yellow, looks, yellow. it looks like mulberry. Like even the grain looks like mulberry. It was so, so soft, Austin. It was so easy to turn on the lathe. Um, so I, what I've been doing is I've been put kind of getting the, the, I'm buying round blanks from Rockler because I could glue boards together, but a round blanks $12 and I don't have to wait oh, a yeah. day for it to dry. So I went and bought a cherry blank, a, um, maple blank and the acacia blank. And so I'm kind of getting the center ish of them, but they're not perfectly round. And then I have the CNC do a four inch diameter, inch and a quarter depth hole. And that's kind of like where the ashes go. And so that's what I, I I do in there. And then I put it on the lathe and I do the rest. What I did different this time was we had talked about, I'd use the foster bit to do the cigar holders on the first two. This one I did on the router table. So I found the you know bisecting lines and I glued a piece of scrap plywood on the back to get a straight edge, found the center, and then ran it across the router table with that bowl bit on it. And it was crazy how much that big ass bit on the router, the router did not like turning that big ass bit with any resistance. Mm. So I had to kind of just do, I think I did five or six passes to get to the depth I wanted to reach, but um, that came out really easy and, you know, no tear out. I was worried about that too, but it came out great. Um, and then I, I put it in the mineral oil overnight when I flipped it over to let it dry. I saw those cracks. I was like, damn mm. it. But I may be able to do, I put a thing on Instagram. I got some feedback some people suggested just thin CA glue, fill it. A lot of people said just leave it alone. Um, but some other people had suggested like a brass insert or something, which I don't know that mm. that would help with splitting, but 
it would look cool. But mm-hmm. when I looked at Marvin's bowl, Marvin's bowl didn't have straight sides. It was tapered towards the bottom, which I thought would be a problem with tilting over. But I guess you're not putting anything heavy. It's just a cigar on the edge. So maybe I can taper it. That'll get rid of a good bit of the the split. And uh, I don't know. I'm going to do a few different options there. But they've been fun to make. And the biggest thing is right now I'm just doing, you know, I'm turning it on the lathe. So I'm doing lengthwise uh, accents. But I would like to do something that went across as well. So it'd be nice if I had some kind of indexer with a mill. And I know I've had all these CNCs, but uh, none of them, I, I don't have an indexer or anything on those um, or an indexer with a router. So maybe it'll be an opportunity to make some kind of jig to hold a router and then be able to index and do accents going the other way or something. That's kind of, if I can figure that out, that would be really neat. That would be cool. Yeah, they look great. Even even now, you know, without going extreme, they look great. What's crazy is I haven't smoked a cigar in probably 15 years. Like I, I haven't, I don't know the last time I've ever even bought a cigar. But yeah, well, I, you can put your boudin in there or whatever. You, oh, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Boudin holder for a foot. That's a good idea. Also, I could put like some kind of dip in the middle and put the dip sausage in the middle, on the yeah. outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, these aren't ashtrays. They're sausage uh, dipping things. Perfect for tailgating <laughs> football season. Right. Yeah, that's there a good idea, go. man. What about you, Christy? What have you been up to? Uh, I finally, finally, after two and a half years of having that welder, Got the welder out. Oh, I got it cleaned up. I got the welder cleaned up. The one thing that I cannot find that I bought two and a half years ago during COVID was all of my weld it yourself kits that I bought from ordered from Richard over there in 42 Fab in Oklahoma. I cannot find that box and my welding gloves and my welding magnets. They've got to be in some sort of box or container somewhere. I cannot find that set to save my life. And let me tell you what, I was so pissed at myself over the weekend. But finally, I was like, screw it. I've got material that I can work with. I've got gloves that I can work with. I'll just deal with the fact that I don't have magnets. And I went ahead and got the monkey off my back, piddled around a little bit and uh, started a project with the welder. It looked good. I saw you post some pictures. You did like, like almost like you were writing a name or something. Yeah. I just did twine on. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I just I did saw some, that and, and you did, did just some straight some lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It looked yeah. good. And then the project, the first project that I want and the material that I've had for literally two and a half years, because like uh, May for Makers 2020, I took a picture of all of my welding stuff because I was going to start welding. Well, two and a half years ago, but I had made a um, epoxy, not cutting board, more like a little serving tray of about, oh, I don't know, 14 inches by maybe 10 inches or so. And it had a really pretty green, um, you know, epoxy between the, the barn wood. And I want that to be a little tray with that sets um, on my couch you know, to where the feet go underneath the couch. You welded and then that it, frame already, though, didn't you? Right, I did. That's what I did over the weekend. That was my second yeah, little project good. that I started. So that's what I remember. I was like, "Oh wow, yeah. that's pretty good." So I, I need I need to pick up those magnets, um, so then I can get everything squared up because I need to put the legs the on. I got the, the frame. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, I remember the story. Now. <laughs> I was, yeah, so I got that. Uh, so I need to pick those up so I can do the rest of that frame. And then that will be my first welding project that's been in the works for two and a half years. But 
you know, it was, it was funny. It was weird doing it myself because the only time I've welded is at Maker's Camp. So at Maker's Camp, you've got everything set up for you already. You got experts in the field of welding, literally standing. You know, Brandy was right there working with us. And uh, JD was right there working with us and keeping an eye on things and just just helping you and encouraging you and all that kind of stuff. So when you're sitting at home, you know, right outside your shop, doing it yourself, it was just kind of like, okay, I could do this. I could do this by myself and, you know, go from there. So I, it was just a huge relief that I just, boom, I started it. So now I need to get a few more things and um, continue on with my project. So cool. I was excited about that. That's cool. How how confident are you feeling in your welds? Oh, they suck. They're bad. <laughs> They're bad. Um, so they just have to do the job, you know. Right. Right. And I need to. Um, I need to get like um, a grinder. A grinder. Yes, I do need to start grinding that and get that kind of lined up. But even like when I was cutting, when I was cutting my frame pieces, it was just a little angle iron. I don't know, half inch maybe. Um, when I was measuring, I wasn't taking into consideration the, a lot of extra that I should be cutting. So I cut them kind of short. So they look a little janky, but my theory is this is my first project, my first welding project. And even if they look janky, even if they look janky after I clean them up, I'm okay with that because this is yeah. my first welding project. It doesn't matter. Doing yeah. Flux core, MIG welding. I mean, right. it's already pretty sloppy to begin with so yeah uh don't let that deter you know, make you a uh, disappointed it's like awesome saying it's all about penetration and making them stick together and it doesn't really matter what they look like because you can always grind it off True. go ahead say it austin it's all about penetration i know that's what you were going to say look maximum <laughs> penetration all right what have you been up to you perfect. turn up the heat that's what i say i was doing the little dials you know yeah i run it max Full, I, just max it. <laughs> I follow the guidelines on the machine because I don't know what I don't yeah, yeah. know. <laughs> well, it depends on what thickness it is, but like whatever right. their thickness is, and then I crank it up a little bit because mm. I want it. I want it deep, deep, deep penetration. Um, yes. What have I been doing? I've been making. Uh, <laughs> I've been making leather malls. So that's oh, very good. I decided I was going to do it like a full-on run of them. So I just, I, I've been gluing handles uh, and by gluing handles, I mean, gluing 30 strips of leather, stacked leather, um, and just kind of keeping, so I only have the one clamping jig for that, that I made. So I just, I, I kind of just jump on it. I, I left it set up over the last couple of days in one spot on my workbench. Mm -hmm. And every time that uh, the glue had enough time to dry, I would just cycle them through and do it the next one. And I've kind of been doing production line, which is not normally how I work like normally I would jump you know like let's get one completely done because it's exciting yeah. and then be you know bored to death immediately after doing the next one so this time I was like screw it I'm just going to make every part five times like right off in fact it's the same piece of brass stuck in my lathe and I've just been cutting it down going part to part to part That's and good. uh yeah so and they're looking really good and they're coming in on weight, which this is, this was something interesting that I've never done before. I've never been concerned with the, uh, the, the finished weight of a, pro a product. Oh yeah. And so I'm trying to get this first run to be 24 ounces and you know, 
the the leather itself is sucking up different amounts of glue depending on you know because it's all tied right so so some of them are like they're ranging of one to two ounces even though they're exactly the same size like they're five and a quarter or five you know whatever they are five and a quarter tall so i'm chasing those numbers as i'm going and i'm trying to get them all 24 so like so I, I decided that I was going to get all of them to almost completely finished before I cut the last wash the br- last wa- brass washer. And ah. then I can calculate the weight and go by how many thou thick it needs to be to hit 24 ounces. So they'll, they'll all be slightly different size, maybe by 10 thou or 20 thou. Um, but I'm shooting for 24 ounces on the scale. So it's been a little bit of a weird, um, you know, process. That's the, I, it, I don't even know if it matters that much, but I figure everybody sells them as a weight. We should try to hit the weight. So uh, you yeah, should that makes bag sense. up all the three eighth inch punches or whatever the size punches for the threaded rod out all the leather, bag all those leather donut holes up and sell it as a man potpourri. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be good. Put it in a dish. It does smell good. Yeah. Yeah. Heather half inch. So actually, you know what? I was talking to, I, I, as a joke, I made the offer to Morley. I was like, hey, you want a thousand of these, you know, hole punch, uh, half inch uh, circle leather pieces and they're quarter inch thick. And uh, Jacob said something, Jacob Griffin said something about, you know, you can make them into uh, earrings or beads or I don't even remember what he said. But one thing that I remember from like, it clicked later. So uh, a lot of people will actually make a string pull um, and that they use it to clean out uh, barrels of guns for lead fouling because uh, that's how, so you make a leather flapper pull and that mm-hmm. it uh, removes lead fouling. So I didn't know if Marvin, cause he reloads and I know he reloads yeah. lead. Yeah. So if you guys need them, let me know. Cause I got a okay. stack of them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He might want to uh, throw them in a bag and uh, They're the right the size for a 50 ship. cal. I mean, you've already got that high caliber audience that, I bet they've got a few shotgun handlers in that group. Maybe that would be something that even if it was just for cost, but to to repurpose and, and get another product line going, it might be something interesting. Yeah. I've just been saving them in a bag. I'm like, well, I'll just see how big this bag gets. You know, I always <laughs> like it's just like a game you play with yourself, you know. Like you should get an ottoman, gonna... one of those ottomans filled with bead little foam beads, but just throw leather pieces in there and it'll just be a the world's most expensive ottoman filling. Yeah. <laughs> be good. <laughs> Tonight, our guest is Matt from Slab City Flies. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Why don't you let our audience know a little bit about you and what it is that you do? Yeah, um, so I'm Matt. Uh, I live in Denver or just outside of Denver, Colorado, and um, have a little small fly tying uh, operation where um, it's actually me and one other guy kind of put our heads together and pick a couple flies out that we like to tie. We take some, take some pictures of them. And then, um, you know, over time we've built up a bit of a, a category on a, on our website, um, use them mostly for trout fishing. So rainbow trout, brown trout, um, cutthroat trout, you know, kind of whatever trout's out in Colorado. Um, but we, you know, send them all over the country. Um, so yeah. That's awesome. I'm really interested in this because I'm in Houston, Fly fishing is not really big. Uh, it is interesting. There is a trout release program where Fish and Wildlife will release trout, but they're not breeding. It's just, you know, a fun pastime thing. And fly fishing has always been, you know, it's one of those 
amorous things. There's mahogany bookshelves, there's whiskey and cigars, and then a fly display case. It, it's what's in the hierarchy of, you know, Ron Burgundy starter kit. Yeah, so totally. <laughs> I'm hoping you can educate me on what what makes a fly a fly and what makes it different than a worm, a crankbait, a rattle trap, you know, things that maybe I'm used to fishing with down here. Yeah. Um, so a fly is kind of an ambiguous term because, you know, when you, when you say a fly, uh, you think of like a house fly and we're not putting a house fly on a hook and throwing it out there and letting it float. Um, it's, it's more of a kind of a broad category of different types of bugs that are hatching on the hatching in the water or hatching on the sides of the, of the river or whatever body of water you're on. Um, and then just creating an imitation, uh, with different materials, um, based on, you know, time of year or, um, the weather that day or, uh, temperature, um, is all going to kind of dictate the, the bug life that's going to be available. And so you can have uh, a fly that looks like a worm with, it's called a squirmy wormy or a San Juan worm. And it literally just looks like a, the worms we stuck on our hook when you're, you know, throwing that bobber out there when you're young. Um, but then you have some that are a little bit more intricate and will imitate bait fish and you can strip them through the water, like, um, like you would kind of a crankbait, uh, or you have some that are, you know, smaller than the tips of your small finger that look like the small little bugs coming up through the water column, um, as the water starts to heat up. And, and so you're kind of trying to imitate the, um, different life cycles of the bugs and then try to kind of be as precise with color and silhouette and um, a bunch of different things to entice trout, which are not smart, but you know, for some reason we got to create a thousand different types of flies to try to try to catch them. So let me ask you this is trout fishing year round or do they have kind of a season? So you can trout fish year round. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm planning to go this Saturday and uh, it'll be a little cold, but um the, the, you know, big thing about fishing in the winter versus the spring fall is just the number of bugs that are available in the water. Um, in the winter, it's cold. It doesn't really support a lot of bug life. Uh, that's why mosquitoes go away in the winter. Right. And so, um, we don't have quite as much of a selection, which can sometimes make it easier because you kind of know this is what's there and this is what they're eating. Um, but as far as, you know, winter, summer, spring, you, you got a lot more of a kind of a smorgasbord in the summer and bigger bugs, um, and different types of techniques you're, you're going to use to fish those bugs. And, and so that's what makes it fun. So talk to me about the different seasons. You know, I've heard you talk about the bug life, the bug cycle. I mean, would you say there's a summer season, a winter season and how that affects your kit? Yeah. So in the... Spring is when things really start to ramp up in Colorado. It's kind of like middle of March, weather starts to get a little bit nicer. Um, and as the water temperature starts to warm up, you're going from um, doing things like nymph fishing, which is fishing bugs that are all subsurface. So all the things you're fishing are, are below the uh, top of the water, which is not really kind of like the, uh, I don't know, like if you watch a river runs through it or something like that, and that bug or that fish is coming up and eating off the top of the water, this is all below the, the subs, uh, the top of the water. So, um, as it starts to warm up, you get more and more bugs that make it through their entire life cycle and emerge up onto the, um, uh, 
onto the surface or they're coming from the banks. Um, and so then you're fishing those flies that'll float on top of the water. And so, um, that can look anything like a grasshopper, um, or an ant or a beetle or, um, a fly, like something that looks like an actual fly called a blue winged olive, um, that will float on top of the water. And that's where you get those, you know, majestic fish jumping out of the water and, and uh, making everybody, uh, really happy to fly fish. So when you're trying to fish those different levels in the water column, is that um, related directly to your fly, how you set the depth that it's going to be at? Yeah. So, you know, you try to kind of use different, typically you're going to fish with uh, two or three bugs floating through the water at once. Uh, And, you know, where you put what bug is kind of up for debate, but um, you can kind of place them in certain places on the line as it's floating through that um, as you're letting it drift through or as you're starting to pull it up out of the water will entice fish depending on, you know, what that bug looks like uh, and what features you've kind of tied into that fly um, to make it look like maybe it's floating up through the water and shaking or it's just kind of, um, you know, dead drifting through the water. Um, And so the different bug that you tie and put in that location will um, kind of entice the fish at different parts of when you're fishing, fishing through that run, I should say. And so you walk up to the bank. Do you like kick over some rocks and look at what's crawling around or do you know, hey, it's a sunny day, it's June, this is what's going to be out there? Kind of a little bit of both. Um, It is fun. You can you can either kick over some rocks, flip them over and see kind of what's in there. Um, You can get a bug sin scene. I don't exactly know how to say that word, but basically a fine mesh, like a cheesecloth or something like that. And uh, you'd kind of stake it in the ground or put it over your net and then kick up some rocks. And it really pushes the bug life through the, uh, through the water. And you can pull it up and look at kind of what's, uh, you know, floating through there. And that's called matching the hatch. And so if you kind of match the hatch, you pick out a, you know, the bugs that are in your box that, that look similar in size. And, and, you know, there's different types of bugs to, uh, you know, a lot of people have boxes dedicated to a specific species. Um, and so then they'll, you know, know, okay, so this is a midge or this is a betis or this is a stonefly. Um, and then you're looking at the size and kind of the silhouette and color of that bug. And then that's what you're, uh, tying on because if it's in the water, it's, it's likely getting eaten by something. So, um, yeah. And then obviously season, if you fish the same place a couple different times, you know what they typically go for, but you know, they're dumb. So sometimes they, uh, they, they, ch- they choose to do something else. So one thing I was curious about is the hooks. Is this kind of a one size fits all, or are there different types of hooks and hooks have cat like categories? Tell me about the hooks and how you choose them when you're making your bugs. Yeah. So different size hook hooks are probably the first place to start. Um, you can have a hook that's, you know, as long as you're fishing a streamer. So something that kind of looks like a traditional crankbait, but more feathers and, um, synthetics on that, um, that can be, the hook can be, you know, an inch, two inches long. And then you can have two of those that are kind of strung together. And, you know, the fly ends up being three, four, five inches long. Um, and then if you're fishing something that's, 
smaller, you know, like a winter bug, um, that hook can range, they, they go by number. Um, so the bigger the hook, the smaller the number. So like a zero or a two size hook is, you know, two inches long. And then it goes all the way up to, I mean, you can get up to size like 36 or something like that. And those are, you know, on your, they're smaller than a matchstick. Um, cause bugs wow. can just range. range. What's your go-to uh, hook size? So typically I'm fishing something or we're tying up something between, um, you know, anywhere from 14 to 24, depending on the time of year. Matt, I'm curious of the material that you're using. You'd mentioned synthetic and then I think you'd mentioned feather and a kind of thing. So I'm just curious what you're using when you're tying your flies. Yeah. Um, so synthetic, uh, we'll use like synthetic hair. Um, you can use, um, kind of these synthetic plastics. It's called, um, silly hair. Um, there's synthetic, um, kind of like flash, uh, kind of looks like stuff you'd make a pom pom out of, but it's mm -hmm. really thin. Um, and then we're using things like, um, a different thread. So kind of, if you've ever gone into your grandma's sewing room or whatever, and they have mm -hmm. those things that are lined up with all the thread on them. So we've got a, two of those in my house full of different color threads, um, different size threads, and then, um, different, um, size tinsel, um, different size tinsel, wire. Um, and then depending on if we want the fly to get down faster, like down into the water column. So sink faster, we'll use, um, different types of lead, different, um, like lead wire wraps. Um, yeah, but then different types of feathers, um, fur from things like, um, elk, um, deer, oh. um, fox. So really just kind of, um, you know, peacock, um, hmm. peacock carol. It comes from all sorts of different places. And, um, yeah, really, if it's, if it's come from, I like, I use my dog's hair. Um, so, <laughs> You know, wherever it can come from. We'll, I've got we'll a bag of free material I can send you whenever you want. You just, <laughs> did it come out of the vacuum cleaner? Yeah. It's all <laughs> under the bed right now. All right. Well, that's why I was curious, like for the deer or the elk or whatever, do you have a special source that you get the variety from? Or because I was thinking I'd heard like if using like squirrel or or rabbit. Of course, that might just be more in my Missouri area because those are so popular. Uh, yeah. So there's um, different shops around that will sell the materials. Um, I've had people who, have, uh, you know, are hunters that'll just, um, all you gotta do is once you've killed the animal is just, um, scalp it and let it dry out for a little while. And then it's good to tie, uh, good to use. So I've had, um, hunters give me materials like full birds, full, um, pheasants. Um, and then for most stuff, I'm going to one of the shops around town and, and picking up, uh, the material. So I'm also curious, what is your like signature style? What's your like go-to type of fly? So for us, for me, I think it's more of, we tie mostly nymphs um, and we're, you know, kind of like those mid-size kind of 14 to uh, 18 size nymphs, things that you can use year round. Um, and then we also, you know, kind of falling into what they're called midges, which are kind of smaller, but fish just feast on them. They're they're pretty easy to tie. So um, something like that, but, you know, really um, nothing too flashy. Uh, a lot of try to use natural colors, um, things that are going to, you know, really look like, um, you know, things that fish are eating. Um, 
you know, most of the recipes that we use are, are predetermined. They're pre pre-made. There are people that are much smarter than me that have, you know, figured out different recipes for these flies. And, and so we're using those to, um, you know, we'll go test them and, and, you know, certainly come up with our own ideas, but, um, uh, for the most part, they're recipes that were, um, you know, produced, you know, many, many years ago or, or have been kind of fine tuned over the years. So you're making stuff that, uh, is being used in a regulated environment, right? It's cause fishing license and stuff. Is there anything that you have to abide by with making these kind of things? Um, yeah, I mean, so I never will tie on like a treble hook or anything like that. Um, so it's all single point hook. Um, and most of the fishing public fishing spots, it's all, um, you know, single point and they typically will put a limit on the number of flies you can have on your rig. Oh, really? um, you know, we don't pinch the barbs before we send them out, but encourage people to pinch their barbs. Um, so kind of like flatten the hook, um, so that there's not something keeping it in the fish's mouth and kind of just decreases the likelihood of like, if the fish swallows the uh, fly, when you have to take it out, you're not kind of doing something that'll hurt the fish. Um, but yeah, other than that kind of recommendation, there's, there's not much from a regulation standpoint that we had to kind of abide by. So I was kind of curious, you talked about the recipes and how these things have already been made up, but surely you've done some experimentation on your own, right? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I don't tend to broadcast those too much because, you know, sometimes they can look like Frankenstein. So I, uh, <laughs> I'll keep them, keep them to myself. I'll fish them and I don't really have anything, you know, working right now. I have a couple ideas in my head of, of things I want to do that are based on other, uh, recipes and, and types of flies that I've fished before. But, um, you know, sometimes I think in the fly tying world, especially, you know, there's kind of these staple flies and then people will make variations of them and, and say, well, this is a different fly pattern, but most of them look very similar. It's just the material is a little bit different or the coloration was a little bit different. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to kind of abide by that a little bit, knowing that, you know, the person or, or people who made these up before me did a really good job. And if I, if I change one little material and give it a different clever name, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, stealing their shine from, uh, what they've done before. And I know Christy asked about synthetic and natural materials. Do you find in the fly fishing world, is it about looking as natural mother nature driven as possible, or are there just some real exotic flashy things that attract the fish? Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it, again, it kind of goes back to the weather. Um, some days, overcast days, you want that flash, you want that, um, like purple, like there's no bug in the world as well. There probably is, but there's nothing out here that's like purple, purple. Um, but for whatever reason, some on the right day, fish love purple flies. There's a fly called a juju betis and in purple, it's like a deadly fly. You'll go out and just slay them all day. Um, but I, you know, I think what the more important thing is just that the silhouette or the shape of the bug going through the water really matches what those bugs in, in real life look like. Um, and I've always heard fish are colorblind. So like purple, green, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but it's more kind of, if that, um, material can give you the profile of the bug, then, um, I think you're gonna, you know, end up having a pretty useful fly. What about the other senses? Like I know deer hunters will use urine and stuff. I mean, do y'all pee on flies before you throw them? <laughs> uh, I've never been. That's a good idea. I've never peed on flies. I have done, uh, I've done, there's, they do a, a fly fishing tournament out here that, um, 
you go out and you try to catch as many species as you can and in Colorado, all in public water. And they specifically say no dipping your flies in like catfish bait or anything like that. So I think there's some validity to the, uh, the smell thing for fish or something draws them in that way. I've never peed on mine though. So I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> well, look, if you start a line where you're peeing on them, that line is going to be called drop your fly and you can have that. No charge. You can have that. I'll take it. I remember hearing uh, years ago about a bunch of old timers that would spray their um, stuff with WD-40 oh. because WD-40 is fish oil fish based. Oil. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that. What I'll about the that. other materials like glues or the type of thread? Is it cotton thread or polyester thread? I mean, do you think there's anything to the materials and what it does when it reacts with the water? Yeah, there's um, definitely a difference. So we have, um, you know, basically, basically different odd threads. So like the thickness of the thread, the way it lays down on the hook, um, you know, you can get some that lays really flat and others that kind of creates more of a ribbing effect um, or some that when you zoom in on with a camera, especially it looks almost like a, a small piece of yarn. Um, you know, all of it, once it's saturated, it's going to sink. Some of it's going to sink at a little bit different rate. Um, you know, that's what your split shots being used for is kind of get it down. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, definitely for like the profile of fish, the different type of thread you're using is going to make a, a big, big difference. Um, and then as far as sink rate, it's all going to kind of move through there about the same. Um, but yeah, there's probably on my, on my bench here, uh, about, I don't know, 10 different types of just not color wise, but just different types of thread that I use. Um, and then, you know, all of those in a bunch of different colors, ranging from black, brown, neon green, all sorts of stuff. So, and so we talked about threads and we've talked about feathers and furs and we've talked about string. What are some of the other types? I see these little balls that look kind of like the head of a bug or something. What oh, are yeah. those called? So we use a material called dubbing. Dubbing comes uh, from, you can have synthetic dubbing. Dubbing kind of looks like, um, you know, it just has a bunch of flash to it. It's pla it's like a really thin plastic. Um, and then you can have natural dubbing that is a little bit more fine or a little bit more hairy. Um, and so you're using that to either create the head of the fly um, on some, uh, like a more simple fly, like a midge that might, you might do a little dubbing ball, you know, that's, um, you know, the size of a ballpoint pen to mimic a little bit of the head of the, of the bug on something bigger. You can use uh, more of that dubbing to create a tapered body. Um, and depending on what that looks like, you can put it on the fly to, that you know when it's dry it kind of looks like it's puffed up um and then when it gets wet it actually looks like because of the taper of the body and the way the other um dubbing or other material is sitting up on the fly it'll actually kind of collapse over it and create a little bit of a, a point at the end so it looks like a it looks like the bug so um yeah the dubbing is is really important um i mean when i first started tying i think dubbing was like the most you know, uh, challenging thing for me to figure out what to do. It's really just like licking your two fingers and then rubbing it onto the string, which for whatever reason I couldn't figure out. And then <laughs> it clicked one day and now, you know, I've got 80 different types of dubbing and, uh, it's really useful. Um, so yeah, we use that. Um, the, most of the time you can use like a head cement, um, which is like a glue kind of deal um to secure some of the pieces like if you're tying a bigger fly um, something that's going to take you a little bit longer to tie um, so you use the head cement or like a uv resin um, to kind of hold down some of the 
um, or even like a super glue. Um, I have some super glue on my desk that I use to kind of hold materials in place um, on a bigger fly where it might take me, you know, 10, 15 minutes to tie, which is in the fly tying world is kind of a long time. Um, so that, you know, you don't get to the end of the fly, you spend 15 minutes tying it and then you go and everything unravels on your first cast. Um, so I'm using a couple different of the materials like that. Um, but you know, on a simpler, um, smaller bug, typically I'm just finishing the fly with a, with, with the knot, it's called a whip finish, um, which is just basically a couple whips of the thread and comes right over the end of the hook or the eye of the hook. And, um, tends to hold everything in place pretty well. So a big thing about your flies are that they're all hand tied. But when I looked at the prices and then I looked online at what these things cost, there has to be, you know, is there a bunch of technology behind the scene with big fly fishing and they, they've got robots that are tying these things? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, for some of the, um, major companies here, um, they'll take uh, a pattern that someone's created, um, and they'll mass produce it. And so then, uh, they're using a machine to, I believe they're using a machine to, to create those flies. Cause there's no way you could make, you know, as many as they are getting shipped out across the country to Orvis stores or fly shops all around the, the country. Um, but then there's a lot of people that are just kind of hand tying flies. Um, that, you know, maybe one day will get, you know, like hand produced or mass produced by, um, somebody like that. But, um, yeah, there's definitely a, a difference in cost. Um, and some, there's some other, you know, aside from like the bigger retail, um, companies like Umqua or Orvis or something like that, where they're making a bunch of flies and they have signature tires and things like that. Um, and they're, you know, reasonably priced flies. There's some other companies that, are, um, you know, really undercutting and, and, uh, you know, I've gotten some, uh, inquiries about mass production and they come from like Kenya or, um, China or something like that. And they'll just, one of them called me on Instagram and was like, Hey, do you want to, you want your flies mass produced? I was like, no, I don't. So, yeah. So our listeners may not know this, but in a previous life, Austin made surfboards oh, and he would go to the beach and you know, he would ride the surfboard he made, he would look down on people who were riding surfboards that they didn't make. So I'm curious yeah. when you go out fishing and you see people, you know, using these non hand tied lures, do you kind of like snicker at them? Is there kind of a hierarchy of the fly fishing community? No, no. I if anybody who's out fly fishing. I'm, I'm happy. They're, they're getting out there and doing it. Yeah. It looks so, awesome. you know, I'll hand, I'll hand off, uh, you know, if they're having a hard time, I'll hand off some flies to them or, um, you know, let them know what, what's been working for me. And, uh, I was once that person who was out there doing, uh, you know, using who knows what on the end of a hook thinking, why am I not catching trout? And this guy upstream is just slaying them. So, uh, it's been a really fun, uh, thing for me to do to learn how to fly fish and then, you know, really learn how to tie flies. And, um, I would, I'm happy to share that with anybody. So. So I wanted to ask you about your bench and, um, like the tools of the trade. Can you kind of walk us through like some of your, you know, the, the tools that you use for the majority and maybe some oddball tools that we would not even know what it is or something like that. Yeah. Um, so kind of basic setup is what you, of what you need, uh, a vice. So a small, tiny vice, um, that can kind of, um, change 
uh, clamp size, depending on the size hook you're using, um, a bobbin, which is what holds your thread. Um, it just kind of, you know, bo thread bobbin just looks like a, kind of like a V holds the thread, uh, thread at the back of it and then you thread it through a little hole. Um, couple different pairs of scissors, depending on the type of bug you're cutting or type of thread you're using or material. Um, I've probably gone through 20 pairs of scissors since I started tying flies because they dull, they get dull or, um, you know, I've used them to cut wire or something like that. And they just kind of, yeah. Um, and then, you know, basic things like a whip finish tool, um, different types of resin. Uh, what's, a, what's a whip finish tool? Uh, whip finish tool is just kind of, I can show you, I can't really describe it really well, but it's just kind of like a, um, yeah, it just helps you kind of angle the thread just right. And then it kind of lives in this little, uh, swivel. So it can kind of spin like that. So when you're finishing the, the bug, you can just whip it around like three or four times to kind of, um, cinch down your knot real tight. Um, so that's something most people have when they're tying. You can also finish it with your fingers, but my fingers are too dumb to figure out how to do that. So I usually use the tool. And um, yeah, so for people listening, it looks like when you took a coat hanger at that time, you locked your keys yeah. in your car and you were yeah. trying to fish your keys out and then it didn't work and you pull it out. That's what this looks like with miniature. You could make yeah. it with a coat hanger probably. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then some of the other kind of, um, more i guess exotic tools they're not really exotic but things that maybe not everybody uses i have a, a thing called a dubbing brush um, which is basically a couple different textures um and it helps you kind of brush out some of your materials especially with your bigger flies um so you can get some of the you know when you tie them in not, not everything will cinch down to the hook so you're you know combing out some of the uh the extra material and you can use it to make the fly look puffy or buggy or um you know kind of different shapes and oh, what else do i got over here i don't know i have more markers on my table than i did growing up as a kid um so i <laughs> use different markers to especially on bigger flies like streamers or something like that to add um you know a little bit of color variation or like um you know um stripes or something like that and you can also buy material that has the stripes built in or kind of dyed into the material but um i usually use the markers to do that so when you're making these bugs Basically, you're making them for two reasons, and it's two different types of fishing, right? Fishing for fish and then fishing for the customers. So do the colors make the customers buy them more or the fish buy them more? Mm. Ah, that's a good question. Uh, I think the color, well, I don't know about the color with the customer. I think it is definitely the, you know, profile. I don't know. I, mean, I think it's the same with fish and, and humans. That's definitely the profile <laughs> yeah. of of the bug, you know, cause if I take a really good picture of it, um, and kind of highlight some of the things that I know, um, people are looking for in their bugs that make it just look, I don't know, it's, it's kind of weird, but people are like that, that, that fly looks sexy, you know, yeah. that fly is going to catch fish. It makes people say like, Oh yeah, that's going to catch fish. And, and then those are usually the same things that fish are looking for. So, um, I don't know, I guess we're the same as trout. Yeah, you, especially you get those comments right on your Instagram. It says Colorado brown trout liked this image, yeah. you know, yeah. like yeah. <laughs> the fire symbols. And I'm like, oh, it's just like a bug with a, you know, it's it's just got some rabbit fur on it, but it looks, yeah, people like it. Yeah, because if you had a purple and gold one, Dean is all over that fly. <laughs> yeah. And if it's black, that's where Austin's snatching right yeah. off the shelf. Right. 
We can we can do both of those. We'll do a uh, a uh, college theme uh, run next year. There you go. I want to ask you. You know, you're in Colorado. I know y'all are worried about being evergreen and recyclable. Is there any part of this process where you can reuse hooks or reuse materials or freshen up old flies? Um, so you could definitely reuse hooks. Um, you know, if you go out over time, no matter how well you tie it, the fly is going to break down, especially if it's in a, a fish's mouth and being kind of flung around. Um, so if you really wanted to, you could, you can just take a lighter and, and burn the material off and use the hook over again. You know, if the hook gets bent or something like that, like if it got stuck on a rock, um, or, you know, you're pulling it out and it kind of bends the, the, the a little bit, then you probably can't, you know, reuse that again. But, um, you know, I think, you know, the sustain, sustainable thing to do would be if, if somebody can give you material um, from like a sustainably sourced um, animal, you know, they hunted it, they did it right. You know, that's probably, and they're not going to use the the fur or they're not going to use the feathers or whatever, then, you know, I think feel like that's a good, good use of material that'd be otherwise thrown away. I'm telling you, golden uh, retrievers, Labradors, German shepherds, all the fly fishing material you could ever yeah. need. Yeah, I have the yellow lab. She, she does pretty good. There you go. We're trying to work with um, Trout, Un Trout Unlimited, which is one of the big conservation um, organizations in, you know, outdoor activity and, and recreation. So, you know, we want to give back. Um, I feel like, you know, they do really good work with, you know, preserving and, and, um, maintaining fisheries around the country. One of the ones they work real closely with is the Denver South Platte. So the South Platte runs all, you know, kind of through the, um, it's a big river basin in, you know, nearby here. And, um, the river actually does flow right into, um, downtown Denver. And, you know, I don't know if y'all have been to Denver or anything, but parts of downtown Denver can be a little, um, you know, messy and the river has, um, kind of been, um, a victim of that. And they've done a, a great job of, um, trying to, um, clean up that area a little bit and make it a, a place that you can fish now, fish for trout, fish for carp, oh, fish wow. for fish for bass. And so, um, it's still, you know, uh, not completely finished, but, um, you know, we'd like to work with them and, um, try to get back to them, um, because, um, you know, without efforts that like theirs, we, we wouldn't have nice places to fish, especially in our backyard. So, um, yeah, that's something we try to give back 5% and, uh, we're, we're trying to get kind of something going with them. That's cool. So the trend in commerce, uh, conservation I wanted to ask about, are you doing, um, catch and release only? And if not, what's your favorite trout recipe? It's <laughs> a good question. People give me a hard time who are, are kind of new to fly fishing or, or don't do it too often. They'll say, why don't you keep your fish? I, I, I always catch and release. Um, most of the places in Colorado, um, are, you know, kind of catch and release or they strongly encourage catch and release. Um, you know, if, if you're backpacking up a mountain, um, and you catch a few brook trout, those are usually the ones people say it's okay to eat because there's so many of them and they're tiny, you know, you cook them at your campsite or something like that. Um, uh, but you know, I've, I've never kept a trout and, and I, uh, I think, uh, I don't have the heart in me to, to kill a fish. I I'm kind of traumatized. I did some crabbing when I was in North Carolina, uh, when I was a kid. And I remember my dad putting it into the pot 
And I was just like, I can't do that to a trout. So not that you put trout <laughs> in a pot, but yeah, I, I couldn't do it. So I've eaten trout and I'll eat it and I won't kill it myself, but yeah, kind of a, kind of a whip that way. I'm curious, where's your ideal place that you'd like to travel to, to fish? Ooh, good question. Uh, Argentina. Uh, yeah. Down in Patagonia has some, from what I've seen, incredible fishing. Um, and then New Zealand for brown trout are, um, kind of on the bucket list. If I can ever convince my wife to spend way too much money to go fish, but, um, yeah, both of those places are are definitely bucket list, but we're, you know, I'm really lucky in Colorado here. We have tons and tons of places just in Colorado. Um, it's a little crowded, but, uh, you know, you can sneak away to different places where, um, if you keep them a secret, you can, you can be on your own for a little while and, we got some good states around us in Wyoming and Utah with some good fishing too. So now what's your time limit or casting limit of when you're like, okay, I've got no nibbles, no bites on this. I'm swapping it out. What's your, uh, where's your patience level? Uh, so typically I will give it at least uh, a good, like 45 minutes on, on a rig. Um, and you know, typically with, uh, if you're just, if you're nymphing, you have three bugs that are kind of tied in at different points on, on, uh, some tippet, um, which is just looks like really thin fishing line. Right. And so, um, what you can do is do a couple different things to make those bugs potentially get in front of the, the fish. You can change your depth. So typically when the, the bugs are floating through the water, um, they're going at a certain depth based on where your indicator is, which kind of looks like a bobber it could be made out of yarn or plastic. Um, and that kind of suspends the flies in the water. And so you can change that to, to change the depth or, and where those are flies are kind of coming into the water column. Um, and then you can also change your weight, which, you know, um, affects how fast the flies get down to the fish or, you know, how long they stay in front of the fish. So I'm usually thinking around with those, um, after, I don't know, you know, me eight years ago, it was like after a thousand casts and now me, it's like 20 probably. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll mess with something and then I'll try it again kind of thing. Um, so yeah, we have a segment we call this or that. And I think you've kind of answered some of these. You've answered what's your favorite trout recipe. You've <laughs> answered where you would like to go if you had a, a choice, you know, a la carte, unlimited budget. But the one this or that I think our audience really wants to know is our guest last week, Scott Jabbar, was your brother-in-law by marriage. Yeah. And so this or that, if someone was to win a lottery and the options were a weekend of making wooden toys in Scott's workshop garage, or a weekend of fishing with you in the mountains of Colorado, what do you think is the better lottery prize? Ooh, I've seen, the, <laughs> I haven't personally seen the inside of Scott's garage because they moved into that house a couple of years ago and I haven't, we haven't been out there. Uh, but I feel like the backdrop in Colorado is just like a little bit more appealing than Fayetteville, North that Carolina. That was the most, you know, gentle <laughs> way of saying the choice is obvious. <laughs> Yeah, I want to go fishing in Colorado. Yeah, we have uh, we have some pretty scenery, and uh, you know the beer out here isn't too bad either. So, all right, Matt. So we have one question that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast, and it's our three tools. And if you were going to start your um, your journey again, what would be your first three tools that you would purchase for doing your bugs? Uh, so first one would definitely be a high quality vice. I, I, uh, 
I kind of you know, was on a budget when I first started. And so I got advice that maybe didn't have all the things uh, I, I would have wanted, um, you know, a couple months into doing it. And so definitely advice, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to skimp on that, but um, uh, you know, yeah, that's kind of what, what I do. What kind of advice I was going to ask you that earlier, what kind of advice is, uh, is your like go-to? Mm -hmm. So I have a, a spider odyssey. It's a rotatory vice, so can spin it around to add materials. Um, the clamp has different, uh, add-ons that can, uh, or different size clamps that I can put on there based on the, the hook size I'm using. Um, it's definitely not the fanciest one. I mean, you know, they can range from $20 all the way up to like 800 bucks and it's mm. definitely you know not in the 800 range but um it has everything i want and um, i've actually used a couple of them so they work pretty well cool yeah well, so what what else um and yeah and then probably two and three would be uh two good pairs of scissors um <laughs> or a pair of sharpeners for scissors so you can you sharpen them instead of just throwing <laughs> them away yeah or one pair, pair of like wire snips would probably yeah. fix the yeah, one of your issues. Of scissor issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quit cutting yeah. lead wire with your scissors. The lead wire I break off with my fingernail. It's pretty soft, but the some of the wire when I'm actually cutting it off the spool, I'll use an old pair of scissors. Um <laughs> when it's on the bug, you can actually just once you wrap it down with the with the thread, you can just spin the wire off and it'll break off. And so that saves your scissors and uh you know gives you a bit more of a clean tie. But, um, you know, if it's coming off the spool, I usually just cut it because I'm lazy. <laughs> cool. So I wanted to ask you one more question before we let you go. Do you ever do you have a good hooked yourself story? Mm. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I've hooked myself many times. I've hooked my wife many times. So it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, but yeah. So one time this is a, probably three, four years ago. Um, you know, if you're, you're lucky enough to have a friend with a raft, you can, you know, drift down a, down a river for a day. And that's kind of the primo way to fish. Um, and so we were, you know, three hours from Denver and then two hours into rafting and we were doing like a nine hour float. We were going to be out there from dawn till dusk. And I was using, we were streamer fishing It was April. Um, and basically when you're streamer fishing, you are, you know, throwing the streamer towards the bank, kind of trying to get it as close to the bank as you can. And then you strip it back in and uh, the fish will kind of go nuts on it. And so you use flies that are used streamers and they have big hooks like they're two, three inches long, two inches long usually. And most streamers will have um, two of them in them. So I had, um, you know, when you streamer fish, you kind of have to back cast way behind you and then whip it forward. And these things are loaded with um, kind of tungsten beads or cone, tungsten cone heads. So they get whipping through the air pretty quick. And I had been going probably for a couple hours. My arm was getting a little tired and I got a little lazy. And I, I got a little off uh, rhythm on my cast. And when I brought it back around, I don't know what I did, but I kept it too low. And it, I just felt this like smack in the back of my hand. And I was like, oh, that's not good. And I looked down and it was buried into the back of my hand. Oh, no. Huge, you know, two inch hook sticking out of the bottom of my hand. I can post the picture if people want to see it. It's pretty gross. And it's just <laughs> like, you know, there's blood and whatever. And so there's a couple of different ways you can get a hook out. Um, 
you know, the way if you have a barb in it, they recommend you take the hook and actually bring it back up through the, push it through the skin. Don't try to pull it back out. You push it forward and up and then you cut the hook barb off and then pull it back out. Well, we didn't have something to cut the the hook with. Um, and I tried to push it through my skin and, and that is probably one of the most painful things I've ever felt is just trying to <laughs> drive a hook further into my hand and back through my skin. So I was, I had my buddy pull the boat over. Uh, we had a cooler full of beer and um, some ice. So I let the ice sit on my hand for a little while, kind of numb it up and I cracked a beer real quick. And then I just grabbed it with my forceps and ripped it right out of my hand. Oh, and it was, um, yeah, it was brutal. I mean, we were, it was, we were still, you know, if we finished the float, we were still nine hours from being home. Oh, so man. it was like, if I just, we would just went straight through. I, if I didn't, I couldn't have left it in my hand for another nine hours. So I just pulled it out right. and I have a nice scar on my hand to, uh, to prove it. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, that was probably the, the best one. Well, Matt, we really appreciate you coming on with us. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you? So we're on Instagram at slab city flies. And then our website is also slabcityflies.com. So we got stuff on there, um, mostly fishy content and, uh, you know, pictures of flies. And, and, uh, if you need anything, any bugs, um, check us out. We, uh, we'll ship around the country. Um, I know there's great fishing up in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, um, uh, you know, we send it anywhere. So. Cool. And then before we let you go, one last little question, where is your favorite secret spot located? Oh yeah. I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for coming on. We really yeah, appreciate thanks, it. Matt. Totally. Thank, Thank you. you guys. Appreciate right. it. Good night. All right, we want to take a second to thank all the folks over on Patreon. If you'd like to join them over there and get some additional content from us, um, patreon.com slash making our way podcast. And on our top tier, we've got Marion Ward from Creative Ward Gallery, Vincent Ferrari from Digitally Creative, Justin from Bear Maked, Scott Oren from Daddy Yourself, Matthew from Orangino Sorio, and Marcel Este. Then on our middle tier, we've got Tony Langer from Langer Works. Brendan McDonough from McDonough Design, Susan DePlantis from Hearth and Garden Art, Stephanie Taddeo, and then on our first tier, we've got Jacob uh, Griffin Makes, and then we've got Keith Drennan from Blackthorn Concepts, Jacob from Other Dog Design, Eric from Overall Makerworks, Jeff Stein, a weird guy, Dave Bauer, Caitlin Landerno from Kate's Casino, Morley Kurt, Greg from Platte Valley Woodworks, The Grant Alexander, Jen Griffin, The Black Sheep, Brian from Moonshine Leatherworks, Makeshift Podcast, Maritime Knife Supply, uh, Just Might DIY, Jay-Z and D, and then Henry at HT1 Metalworks, Brad Harrison from Brad's Customs, and the newest edition is Steve Delaney from One Old School Pirate. Thanks so much, folks. All right, guys. Chatting with Matt there, all I can think of was all of the different times we went fishing as kids and even as adults now. So, so let's hear them. What are your fishing stories? Uh, Dean, what do you got? So let's keep it organized. Let's go like one great fishing story and then maybe a disappointing fishing story. Um, so we can go in that, that route. So I'll start with my great fishing story. 
Um, so obviously I grew up in South Louisiana, so I grew up fishing, you know, we, we went fishing all the time, but the one fishing memory that I think I'll have my whole life was I, when Kristen and I were dating, we just started dating. We got invited to a duck camp during duck season and it was down on the Gulf coast. And the thing was, you would go, it was kind of like a fins and feather deal. So you would duck hunt in the morning and in the evening. And then during the day you would go red fishing. Well, when we went duck hunting that morning, I fell out the boat and it was 30 degrees and I fell Mm -hmm. out the boat and I'm soaking wet and I stayed in the blind and did the full hunt. And then we went back home and I was so exhausted from just shivering for, for, you know, two hours or whatever that I was like, I just want to stay here. Well, Kristen went red fishing with uh, my buddy and then it was us another couple and then our friend took us in it was his dad's camp so the four of them went red fishing and Kristen had an absolute blast and i have this picture of her making like a kissy face at the camera holding a red fish and it's making like you know the fish face at the camera it is a hilarious photo because i know how cold it was but she was so excited she didn't know fish got that big and just oh. to go out there and you know she's not offshore but it's salt water. And what it is, is they have these pipeline crossings. They put rocks over. So the water spills over and the fish love the turbulent water right there. And you go stand on the, you know, the rock jetty and you can fish and catch, you know, saltwater reds. And she just had an absolute blast. And she talked, she didn't say a word about ducks. All she thought about was that was a fishing trip and she had an absolute great time. And it's one of those core memories that'll just never leave. When y'all got a, a big fish tail? Well, I think, and I think I sent you guys pictures of one of my best fishing days was when Marvin and I were, gosh, was that a year and a half ago or a year ago or something? We were down in kind of more of the Southwest Arkansas. Um, Marvin's business partner has a cabin down there. So we were on the river and we go down there a few times and we're on like one of, you guys know I'm not a water person. Right. But so we're on these one of these little like two seater kind of like little boats, you know, super simple, you know. And we were out there for hours and Marvin's just like wheeling him in. I mean, he's catching and catching and catching and and I am not catching a thing, but I'm a good sport because I enjoy being out there. And it was beautiful weather and beautiful scenery and everything. And um, so we were about to go ahead and, and go on in. But we're like, no, let's give it a little more little more time and so we kind of went down the little different direction of the river and i was still having no luck and i'm like okay let me throw it in one more time cast one more time and then we'll go on into the house and i cast and i thought i got it caught on a log or something in the water because i'm telling you what it stopped and then it started running the other direction and i'm like holy cow hands down the biggest fish and so i'm like you know cranking it in and marvin's like coaching me a little bit even though i've been i've been fishing my entire life but i appreciate his excitement and his energy and um and so i finally you know he was helping we didn't even have a net or anything Mm. so it was it (laughs) kind of ended up being a two-person job to get that thing in the in the boat but i i was elated it was it was a super fun day and it definitely made for a, a good ending even though the rest of the day for me anyway was just sitting there watching marvin catch fish so 
it's all good though. A day, you know, a day fishing, regardless of whether you're right. actually catching much or not, is still better than, you know, a day at the office or whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, awesome. What's your big fish tail? Uh, I'm not really a fisherman. Like, you know, I'm in the water. I guess technically I'm the lure. Uh, most of the time. <laughs> uh, so I don't have any that's uh I, I think I've told you guys a story about me scooping up a shark. Um so I was out surfing. Um it was me and my buddy Hayes and we were paddling we Patreon exclusive content. It could have been. It could have been on there. Um so we're 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 on um P Island, which is a by Rodanthe. I know a lot of people know where Rodanthe from the Netflix series, Nights in Rodanthe or whatever. So we were right there. It's it's a it's a preserve Rodanthe is just south of the island that's like a nature preserve so there's no you're not allowed to be on there at night there's you know there's only one road that goes through it there's no houses no nothing but there's they don't dredge and they don't replenish sand there so the bars are natural which nature has like the best setup for bars to surf and uh we're paddling out and it's morning so the sun is you know we're on the east coast so the sun is in our eyes and as you're paddling and you're duck diving in the front of your board, the duck dive is like you sink the front of your board and you kind of go underneath the wave and you come back out the other side and your arms are out in front of you as you're pushing the board underneath. Right. So you're kind of doing a push up to sink it. And all morning we were talking about like, it felt a little sharky out there. Like it just feels <laughs> sharky. Sharky. Yeah. yeah. Just, it's like, a. it's almost like, you know, Spider-Man has the, spidey sense yeah. it's kind of like that like you feel your body you feel like a electricity and if you, normally almost every time there's a shark around when you feel that so <laughs> it just felt sharky anyways so we're paddling out and he's paddling out behind me and i go to push through this wave and as i'm taking the big <gasps> to go under mm -hmm. in the sun in the middle of the wave i see this shark shadow <laughs> And damn, if I didn't scoop that bastard up, he's on. So I pop up out of the water on the other side and my arms at that point, because like when you're coming back up and they make like a U shape, he's in my arms flapping around. It's like a four foot shark. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, and it's just like it's and I'm just like, oh, shit. And it's like I dump it off the side. And when I dump it, I turn around and he's looking at me like, no way that just happened, man. <laughs> So that's my, that's definitely my best, you know, hand caught, uh, fish story. That's a winner right there. Yeah. I don't even know what time, like people are always like, what type of shark was I? Like, Dude, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, here, here's what kind it was. Get the fuck off me. Kind. <laughs> I, I don't say, know what it was. You didn't have time to look up under its yeah. skirt. You don't know what it was. Yeah, no way. <laughs> All right. What's your, uh, what's your rough story there, Dean? So my dad has suddenly labeled himself a fisherman. Uh, you know, in the last year or two, he bought him a big fancy Roballo boat. He goes fishing all the time. And so the last time I went home, I think for Father's Day, you know, that's what he wanted to do. So I drive home and, you know, I buy a fishing license and I buy all the stuff I need and we load up the boat and I didn't catch a damn thing. Now, all <laughs> I get every weekend is pictures of him holding giant fish from these fishing trips with him and his friends. And all I caught was you know, a case of the stomach aches. Cause I forgot to bring a sandwich. Um, <laughs> I think I'm, we caught some crabs, which that was pretty frustrating because they steal your shrimp. And then I was like, well, if I keep catching them, I'm, if I get half a dozen, I'll, th this will be my catch or whatever. But what all I ended up with was crabs in every corner of the boat doing a Mexican standoff, uh, waiting for <laughs> you to step down low. 
But uh, yeah, I didn't catch a damn thing. And then the next weekend he goes out and he's catching fish again. So apparently I'm either bad luck or I just don't know what I'm doing. But uh, that was a, it felt just like such a busted opportunity. Here I am finally going home. I don't go home enough. I'm going to have this, you know, bonding moment and catch fish with my dad. And all it was, was an hour boat ride to nothing. And then an hour boat ride back. (laughs) So that's my busted story. What about you, Christy? What's your busted story? Uh, Well, my busted story, I was not actually on the boat. So years ago, back in, actually, it was 2011, we were down in Texas. And um, Katie, my youngest, so she would have been 11 at the time. And uh, her and her dad, and then we chartered um, chartered a guide to take him out in the Gulf to go shark fishing. Nice. She was super excited, and her dad was super excited. Everybody was super excited. Except for me, because you guys know my fear of water. So in my mind, my baby is going out into the Gulf to to fish shark and something horrible is going to happen. So the entire morning they, they did like a half day outing. I stewed and worried and stewed the entire time they were gone. And then when they came back, they had an absolutely wonderful time. Got pictures of Katie. She she caught some sharks. She's got pictures, you know, holding the shark. And the one that she's got a picture, it was probably only like three feet, maybe three and a half feet long or whatever. But she is just grinning from ear to ear. And the, the little captain guy let her kind of steer the boat as they were coming in. So she had absolute time of her life. But me... That was one of the most stressful mornings of my life. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. So there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys know me well enough to know that. Yeah. yeah. True. Uh, yeah. I was like, I mean, I could see where you're not going to go on that boat, <laughs> but you'll sacrifice right. your kid. <laughs> well, I mean, her and her dad, they wanted to go and I wasn't going to tell her no, she couldn't go. And, but I was like, please wear your, wear your life jacket the whole time and you know yada 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 and i don't know if they did or not but um she yeah, i think at that age they have to well it depends on the state but here yeah. if you're under a certain age you gotta wear a life jacket and stuff but yeah so yeah so my worst fishing story i used to go fish, my grandfather was a gigantic fisherman like he wanted to go all the time he would always go to the bay bridge tunnel which is like the bay bridge tunnel here it's the bridge that goes under it turns into a tunnel it goes under underwater for like 13 miles or whatever. Anyways, it's a very popular spot, but you, it takes a, a while to get out there, you know, but it's got Matt, it's got, they built islands like where the tunnel starts and stuff. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff going living out there. And my grandfather would just go out there, man, in these little boats. And, uh, and he would drag me out there probably when I was like 10 or 11. I am the, uh, I get seasick extremely easy <laughs> like really? like I, yeah me insanely too. easy and hmm. um like like if i go on a ferry like the uh cape may ferry going across to jersey i'll get sick on it and it's like no wow. waves at all and i'll get sick yeah like if it's really rough surf and i'm sitting on my board out there sometimes i get a little queasy <laughs> <laughs> like it's that bad so um i would go with my grandfather and then my grandfather's old school man so it was like Hey, we're all the way out here. You're going to have to suck it up. You know, like he's like lay down in the bottom of the boat. So my, every time I decided I went, 
it was you would go down to underneath the inside the middle of the boat get it to the lowest spot i mean and it, of course it never worked like that doesn't work you, you just feel awful <laughs> and you're just and then you're hot because it's in the damn boat you know that sounds like and, almost all of my fishing stories yeah sit yeah. at the bottom of the boat yeah so i was like i'm not a boat person so now the rest so since then i don't i'm like unless i'm toe toe surfing or we're doing something unless or if i'm driving the boat you know like and then we're not stopping and just sitting and fishing i'm cool with that but that uh it's, the worst part was is he started slaying uh spot and croaker oh. and and he was like filling up garbage bags full of them and i wow. was like man that means we are not leaving for a long time <laughs> <laughs> it's like so ever since then i'm like and finally, when I got older, like the next time I went with him, um, I was like, I'm just going to jump in the water and said, so, like, while you're doing this, I'm just going to swim next to me. And he's, and my grandfather's not the type to swim. Like, he's like, this is really deep. We're in the shipping channel. Like oh, it's wow. really deep. You know, he's like, there's a lot of large animal life out there. And uh, I'm like, yeah, but I don't, I don't want to puke. And he's like, well, definitely don't puke and then go swim. <laughs> <laughs> don't chum yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeesh. So. All right. Well, Christy, yeah. I think you had one bonus fish story you wanted to share with us. Yeah. I wouldn't, like I said, we fished all the time, whether on at the farm at mom and dad's, or we would go over to grandma Kerber's, which you guys know me talking about my grandma enough. Cause she's the one that wrote the journals that we were working on. But so she would, she had a river that went through her farm, but she also had a, a catfish pond that she had a bunch of catfish in. And, and uh, so we would actually fish with chicken livers that mm -hmm. was what um, what we fished with up there. And she would feed her fish like regularly. And what she would feed, you guys would never in a million years guess what she fed her fish. But Other so fish? she, no, oh. um, she, they, she's Catholic. And so up in Jeff City where the diocese is and, and the nuns and they bake all of the unleavened bread for the communion during mass. And there it's, I don't know how they, but there's kind of like a roller. So each piece is the exact same size. So there'd be all the cutoffs of all of the communion bread. So grandma would literally get buckets, five gallon buckets of communion bread. And that's what she would feed her fish on a regular basis. So, that so instead was, of the Lord's chicken, it was the Lord's <laughs> fish bait. Exactly. So, you know, when we were when we were fishing and we wanted a, you know, a snack ourselves, be like, hey, just, you know, there's a little unleavened bread right there. So that's so awesome. We, <laughs> there's no better fishing bait than the bait you can eat when you don't catch any fish. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a win win. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and subscribe. We'd love to hear feedback from you. So reach out to us on Instagram at Making Our Way Podcast. You can find all of our latest individual content on Instagram or YouTube. I'm at High Caliber Craftsman. Christy is at Twisted Twine Woodworking. And Dean is at Dean underscore Duplantis. Thanks again, friends.